it's only a kick, a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Introducing Royal Caribbean's newest ship, Icon of the Seas, the ultimate family vacation. The ultimate six slides, eight neighborhoods, zero compromise vacation. The ultimate never done that, can't wait to do it vacation. The ultimate chillin' by a different pool every day of the week vacation. This is the Icon of Vacations. Icon of the Seas, arriving in 2024. Book today. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game with me, Kevin Day, and Liverpool University's Kieran Maguire. We're back. The summer break is over. It's only taken us two and a half hours to rectify the technical <laughs> problems we've been having because we haven't recorded two weeks and the equipment decided it, it was quite enjoying its summer break, Kieran. But we're here, Kieran. We're here. We are. Yes. Yes. Yes, it's, it's such a shame to to minute to miss Brighton's four minutes at the top of the Premier League and not be able to talk about it. As you can imagine, has been quite frustrating for me. Yes, I, I can imagine it has, Kieran. You can talk about it in retrospect if you want, or you can wait until. <laughs> uh, this is the reason you're frustrated about the delays. You've got you've got Brighton Leicester to go and see later on. I have indeed. Yes, yes, uh, Leicester, Leicester in turmoil. Uh, not spend a bean uh, a week ago. I think we can go second or third in, in the Premier League if we win. So therefore, expect a nil-nil draw. Yeah, I, th- I think it was the only consolation about us failing to beat Man City. Was We knocked you off the top, yes. didn't we? Off you? Yeah. <laughs> yes, you did. <laughs> Which was indeed the only consolation about us losing 9-0 to Liverpool that time because uh, their goal difference was such that they knocked me all off the top of the table. Which is <laughs> there you are. It's um it's Sunday. Our next our next show uh, on Thursday. We have a lot of news to catch up on, um, uh, but we've got so many questions to catch up on that we're going to save most of the news until Thursday. But we should have a quick look here. And we missed the transfer window closing. So we why we picked that time to have a summer break, I don't know. But the to Sky's uh, misery, the transfer window is now shut. The countdown clock that says only 89 days, 46 hours. No, it wouldn't be 46 hours, would it? Be 20. (laughs) (laughs) We have lost. We have forgotten a lot since we. (laughs) Yes. Um, How did did this transfer window compare? You you brought in the overrated Billy Gilmore. We didn't bring in anybody in the last few days. But how did it compare um, billions wise to other transfer windows? Well, it, it is a it is a record uh, in in uh, Premier League history, uh, and, and in fact, in in the history of any league, as far as Europe is concerned, um, I think the total spending by the Premier League was uh, around about one point nine four billion pounds. Is the estimated figure wow. that compares to eighty six million in the Championship? So, you know, the gap between the Premier League and the Championship. Is huge, and I think what what we've got as far as the Premier League is concerned is is a, is a set of drivers which have uh, fueled all of that spending. Um, we've got new owners at, at Chelsea and uh, Newcastle. Clearly, that uh, they're able to flex their muscles. We've effectively got uh, a new owner in the sense that Forest are now in yeah. the Premier League. They've not been there for a, you know, a good few years, so so they're. Their spending came in for a lot of scrutiny as well. We've got the cult of the new manager. Yeah, you know, if a new manager comes in, then they want to stamp their, uh, you know, their philosophy of football onto the club. So Manchester United spent more than two hundred million. Um, we've seen uh, Spurs spend a lot of money because Conte was he was sort of you know, toys and pram uh, yeah. combo was taking place towards the end of last season. Um, We've got uh, Stephen Gerrard, effectively his first summer at, at Villa, and so on. Um, and also, we've got the new broadcast deals. The, the the Premier League 
is fantastic at negotiating deals. So there's a new deal which is going to come on stream as far as the US is concerned. That's a big step up. We've got the Scandinavian deal. You know, Premier League, as far as Scandinavia is concerned, is is uh, is the product. Um, and uh, I think the, the fact that clubs have now come out of uh, come out of COVID. You know, in 2021, there was still a bit of uncertainty. You, know, mm. you, you go back to last summer. Yes, we were we were hoping to get a full season in, but no, that wasn't guaranteed. And therefore, there was a little bit of circumspection from some clubs as to we'll spend some money, but yeah, you know, we if if we end up in November with another you know, lockdown for three or four months, then then that could have substantial impact. Now that COVID does not appear to be a threat to matches taking place uh, in front of paying audiences. That's allowed the clubs to go forward. So that sort of created a seller's market. And and we've seen clubs, you know, Leicester stuck firm you know, in, in respect of their negotiations with Chelsea mm. uh, for Fafana. We did the same with Kukurea. Ajax did the same with Anthony, uh, Manchester United. And and that's, that's boosted spending as well. Uh, nice to see our old friend Arthur. Uh, in the Premier League. Yes, yes in, I was delighted. Yeah, it, it, interesting, Kieran. Two things. Uh, the one club that everybody thought would drive up prices, Newcastle, have been relatively circumspect in their spending. But also, I, I saw a couple of reports comparing uh, transfer spending here to the rest of Europe, especially the other big four leagues. Do you think those, even the big European clubs like Madrid, Barcelona, and Bayern, will be looking at English football? And thinking we need to step our game up and compete more because at the moment we are out buying them by a considerable factor, aren't we? You're absolutely right. I mean, in, in respect of Newcastle, Eddie Howe has uh, yeah, he's gone on record as saying, "Why is everybody picking on me? Yeah, we're we're having to pay a Newcastle tax." Well, yep. Yeah, unfortunately, Eddie, welcome to the big big boys club. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, the, the larger clubs have to pay a premium, and Newcastle are sort of in that that limbo position in the sense that uh, they are perceived as having an, you know, a, a limitless wallet, but they've still got financial fair play to to satisfy, um, and they are determined to do that. So, so I, I think that's that's been uh, part of the reason. But remember, they, yeah, they 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 spent sixty million pounds on a striker. They they have spent over two hundred million pounds mm. since PIF acquired the club, and that was only last October. So, so uh, they have spent. I think I think with regards to your your comments in, in relation to to Europe, you're, you're absolutely right. The, the Premier League had a net spend of just over one billion pounds. The next highest net spend in Europe. Was fifty million. Wow! So this is a big issue, and therefore the spectre of Super League Mark II comes into play because we've already seen some grumbles from uh, countries who weren't necessarily involved in Super League Mark One, but uh, yeah, and, and I think this will will ultimately be be driven by the likes of Perez at Real Madrid because. They've seen these new TV deals being signed by the Premier League. They know that La Liga has a limited amount of interest. And, th- and here's the paradox of, of Spanish football. It, it is a great product, but outside of the two clubs, there's not a huge amount of global interest, whereas in the Premier League, rightly or wrongly, there, there's a lot of affection, there's a lot of attention for uh, you know the big six and and other clubs as well. You know, the clubs like Leeds and yeah. Newcastle have big international followings as well. Um, so, yes, yeah, Super League Mark II. How's this going to operate? Well, uh, you know, there'll, there'll be no noises from PSG until the World Cup is finished, shall oh. we say? Right. So, yeah, because Qatar doesn't want oh, any negative publicity, and Qatar happens to be hosting the World Cup, and and that was yeah you know, potentially a contributory factor to why PSG weren't involved in Super League Mark One. If you get the German clubs involved as well, because uh, you know, German football, yeah, you know, and I think you and I we're both huge fans of German football. They are wondering you know, how are we going to get a competitive product because we know that Bayern Munich are going to win the league. So, you know, can can they generate more money? Does this give an opportunity? So what, what's it going to look like? 
I think it, you know, we could be looking here at a, a continental Super League because the Premier League clubs, if they go into it, then we've got the Premier League and the Super League and therefore that financial advantage is maintained. If they don't go into it, it will allow the, the continental clubs to, to catch up, to reduce that gap. So I think they, they will have learnt some of the lessons from the, the failure of Super League Mark One. I think we'll probably be looking at two divisions of 10 or 12 clubs, some form of promotion and relegation, and then you know, there'll be some there'll be a knockout as well. So you know, that's that's the type of thing that uh, I think we, we could see resurrected, uh, but don't expect it this side of the, the World Cup. This is potentially a very big story you're talking about here, Kieran. Are you are you speculating that this may happen, or are you reflecting on whispers that you've already heard? Um, I, um it's more of the second camp. Oh, okay. Uh, you've you've only got to look at some of the articles which are being read. Sorry, but some of the articles which are being written. Uh, there's these constant noises about uh, yeah, the gap between the Premier League, that the Premier League's now being referred to the Super League. Um, there's certain, if, if you read uh, the, the Spanish press in particular, um, and yeah, we, we know that certain newspapers, you know, Marca, for example, is Israel Madrid's in-house newspaper. Yeah. You know, it, it might claim to be different, but it's uh, only got to look at its reading. So, um, yeah, there's... There's, there's rumblings and uh, things, uh, th- things, things are taking place in, in WhatsApp groups as, as they always have done, uh, and uh, and clandestine meetings. But yeah, it, it's, I, I, w- I would not be surprised if, if something uh, is, uh, is is going to take place. I'm sure the Baroness was delighted that you spent most of your summer break translating and reading Spanish newspapers. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, let's get on with the questions, Kieran. We've got some good ones. And the, the first question is a very interesting one, partly because it came um, by direct message this week from a senior executive at a fairly high-status football club. Um, he or she didn't ask for anonymity, but I, in the circumstances, I think it's probably best that we keep he or she's name out of it. But it's a very interesting question. Um and the question is, he or she says that his club have had lots of offers this summer um, to buy players that, by paying zero up front, but then a large instalment in the second year of the contract. And he, he or she wants to know if that's a new thing. So basically, they want a standard amortised deal, but paying zero in the first year and double in the second year. Is, is this new, Kieran? Yes, I, th- I think this is uh, f- football is is ever evolving when it comes to the, the, the way that the numbers are organised, and I, and I think this is reflective of um, the way that some clubs have got cash flow problems, and they are still desperate to buy a player, um, but they don't want to physically pay any cash now. Uh, now, you know, if I if I want to buy something and I can't afford it, I don't buy it. But football's not like that, is it? Yeah, we, we we've seen the amount of pressure that uh, is placed on managers, is placed on boards by fans. If you don't, so you just what's happened at Leicester. You know, they they were they were booed off. Uh, I think at half time in in their most recent home match, and I think that's reflective of the fact that they've been in a challenging position when it comes to spending money. Um, so. What some clubs are trying to do is to effectively go on the never-never to a greater extent than before. So if you want to sign a player for 20 million, instead of paying you know, five, 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 and five, as you might do over a four-year period, which we will pay nothing now, we'll pay 10 in a year's time and, and then a couple of fives. Um, so it's it's all to do with cash flow management. It has zero impact upon FFP. It has zero impact upon amortization because amortization is always completely independent of the cash flow. But I, th- I think it, this does show that there are still some clubs who, um, you know, whilst football is still relatively awash with money, um, that money is being concentrated in the the, the bank accounts of individual clubs. And there are still some clubs who are 
uh, sort of having to take more of a hand-to-mouth approach. I, I, I'm just wrestling with that concept, Kieran, that if you, you can't afford something, you don't buy it. <laughs> no, yes. Maybe that's something I should take on board. The selling club there is it, there's just, isn't there a certain amount of trust from the selling club there? Then they say, "All right, then fine. You don't have to pay us anything till next year." Because I mean, what if the cash flow problem doesn't get any better next year for the buying club? You, well, you're absolutely right. Um, and if we take a look at the Premier League in total, uh, based on its most recent account, and again, you can imagine how well this went down when the uh, Baroness was uh, you know, sipping her mojitos by the pool. And there's Mika. Did you know that yeah, if we had together all of the amounts of money owed by all of the Premier League clubs on outstanding transfers, it comes to £1.56 billion. And she didn't say very much. She just yeah. she just ordered another drink. You do realise that's why it took so long for the waiter to appear at your table, Kieran. It's just, <laughs> he just kept going, oh, he's, he's going to keep us here for ages, talking about amortisation. <laughs> Um, yeah, but you, you are right. And to be to be fair to UEFA, um, when the new financial sustainability rules, which which are kicking in uh, from this summer, uh, are introduced, one of the uh, one, one of the additional uh, areas in which clubs can be sanctioned to a greater degree is non-payment of outstanding football debts. So uh, I think. Uh, UEFA have probably done their sums as well, and and they realise that uh, to a certain extent, the football industry is a, is a deck of cards in the sense that that there is this element of trust that all payments will be made, and, and you know there have been grumblings, uh, especially from some of the smaller clubs, but you know, sometimes the bigger clubs don't don't necessarily play by uh, the rules which you would consider to be fair, and and this is not unique in. In football, you know, if anybody's ever supplied, uh, if you're if you're a local supplier who's ever supplied large supermarkets or or, or chain stores, um, you know, you you will have experienced similar issues. Yeah, certainly when, you know, when, when in the days when I used to be an accountant and do the insolvency work, it was not uncommon to to be you know, running a a small business in. Uh, you know, in textiles or in foodstuffs, whereby 50, 60, 70% of their sales were to Supermarket X, who said, oh, we're not going to pay you in 30 days, we're going to pay you in 60 days. Yeah. And then then, you, then you're absolutely knackered. Mm. Our next question comes from John Vince, uh, who I assume is the same John Vince who always stands in the corner of the two windows at the back of the Porson's Arms before Palace games, which is one of the reasons, of course, I'm asking the question. Um, it, it doesn't directly relate to football finance, Kieran, except it, it does because there will be some huge compensation claims coming up off the back of this issue. And John's question is about dementia. John says it keeps cropping up, but appears to keep being swept under the carpet. It's been said that old footballs, when wet and heavy, have contributed to players in the past getting dementia, that new footballs may be lighter but fly faster with possibly the same impact as an old wet football. So do football manufacturers now, when developing the football balls, investigate the impact on a player when heading it and the possibility leading to dementia later on? I think John's right for the moment. It has been swept under the carpet, but there are indications that that's because the families of several players are getting together to launch mm. a class action claim. And it could well be that clubs are looking at big compensation claims, but it is a big issue in football, Kieran, isn't it? And it's an interesting question. It, it is, and, and certainly class lawsuits are potentially going to take place in, in other sports as well. Uh, there's, there's a lot taking place in the NFL. We've seen rugby, rugby union, union yeah, in particular. Yeah, yeah. Um, so as, as far as the issue is concerned, I think we need to look at it uh, through through slightly different lenses, if we start off with the dry weight of a football, that is still 14 to 16 ounces. Uh, that was, that, I think that was set in 1872. Yep. Uh, 410 to 450 grams, if you, if you prefer that. Um, and, and I went on to the, uh, the website of the FA just to check up on the details, and there haven't been any changes. Um, and it says that uh, the the football should be should be produced using suitable materials, which it, 
it's, it's a pretty broad, mm. um, uh, you, know, you know, what you know, they don't say what unsuitable materials are, and that it should be spherical, and and that's about as far as it goes. If if we take a look at sort of the history of footballs, certainly. Um, from a historic point of view, when they were pure leather, and, and you and I are old enough to remember being at school with leather footballs when it was wet, um, they they were absorbent uh, if, if on a wet pitch. Um, the first non-leather, uh, the, the first fully synthetic football was didn't take place until Mexico '86. Mm. Uh, you know, and I, I thought actually it might have been a wee bit earlier than that. Oh, so, it, so that as late as that was it. It was as late as that, yeah. Wow. Um, you know, they were starting to use – used to get leather with sort of a plastic film over it, which we, you know, the aim was to try to, try to make it a um, bit more water-resistant, but not necessarily the, the first sort of purely waterproof ones. Apart from those ones that you get when you go on holiday with your mum and dad to you – know, I used to go to Clacton and Malden and places like that, and you get a football from, from those – those shops, which which you know, you, you cost about fifty pence, and they they were purely plastic, and they just moved like anything. Um, but uh, so so that's that's in terms of the materials. Now, I, th- I think John's raised an interesting issue here um, that footballs have uh, become more aerodynamic uh, because of the technologies which are being used. And normally those technologies work, uh, except if, if we go – remember uh, World Cup 2010 in South Africa? Uh, there were two main issues. First of all, there was the Vuvuzelas. Yeah. Um, and secondly, it was the, the Adidas Jubilani ball, um, which if it, if it went at more than 44 miles per hour – um, it started to move in strange directions, and it looks like Adidas hadn't necessarily uh, fully done their homework with regards to this. Um, but if, if we've now got more aerodynamic footballs, um, then they can uh, then, then they can travel at a faster speed, and therefore it's going to have an impact because if you took if you if you work out. Uh, how a football, yeah, when you when you head a football, it's a function of two things. First of all, the weight of the product, and secondly, the speed at which the product is traveling. Mm. Yeah, that that gives that. Yeah, you know, if, if you get, we go back to uh, GCSE physics. You know, you, you you would always be able to work that in. Is it, was it in newtons or something like that? Um, so so we, I think, the the issue of the weight of the ball has been addressed. The speed at which the ball is traveling has perhaps gone in the opposite direction um and perhaps this needs to be looked at but um you know for for you know we we both know ex footballers some of whom uh, have have expressed genuine concerns and you know again we, we go back to when we were young when you were 19 or 20 you could do anything you you know the, the idea of a, of a football you know heading a football damaging you in later life well you're indestructible when when mm. you're young age so so I, th- I think that steps are being taken. Um, I, I think uh, if, if we take a look at what's supposed to be happening as far as training is concerned, you know, limiting the amount of headers taking place, will we be in a sport in 10 years' time in which heading the ball is not allowed? I, 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 I don't know, you know, because I'm, I'm, I'm not a medic, but uh, the, the, the medical researchers certainly appear to have some reservations uh, in terms of the impact because – uh, you know, in, in boxing, you, you you wear gloves to to cushion the blow. Um, if you're if you're heading a football, especially you know, you're certainly in certain positions uh, with, with a lot of force, that that's going to have an impact upon upon you know, what, what's inside your head. Mm. Uh, two things there, Kieran. Uh, we are men of a certain age, Kieran, but I, I think people are going to get the wrong end of the stick when if we start talking about old leather footballs with laces. When we were at school, I think we're not Dixie Dean. Kieran. <laughs> That's true. True. Uh, and secondly, I'm very pleased to hear that the FA guidelines insist that the ball is spherical, because I don't care what the Oxford English Dictionary says about rugby balls. A ball's got to be round. I know this is old. <laughs> I know this is an old, an old battle, Kieran. It the is. Ball, the ball is round, spherical. I believe at the last World Cup we had the roundest ball ever. I'm not sure how they worked that out. Um, our next question is from Connor Gallagher. And if it is that Connor Gallagher, I've got a question for you, Connor. Why? 
Why did you stay at Chelsea? They don't want you. Thomas Thomas Tuchel can't find anywhere for you to play. You could have gone to the World Cup just by coming around here, just down the road a bit, back to Sutton where you belong. Uh, but Conor Gallagher, probably not that one, uh, says, it's a truism that football's governing bodies love to squeeze every dollar, euro and pound out of football fans. So why is there no ability for fans to legally buy full matches from old World Cups, qualifiers, Euros, Copper Americas, etc. I, I think this is a really interesting question, Kieran, because you know during the long arid months uh, of the summer when there's no football, which I, I think is about four days, I counted <laughs> when, when there was actually no football. But I, I would happily download uh, an old World Cup game. You know, I'd probably get bored halfway through because it's much slower than I remembered. But it's it, it seems that they are missing a trick that we can't buy these games. Well, I think actually, Kevin, you just answered your own question. I, I went uh, in the last World Cup. I was, I was lucky. I, I won some tickets to a ten-day uh, an, an event, and there was uh, Jeff Hurst, Graham Lasso, Peter Reid, Kevin Keegan being interviewed, and they were playing the nineteen sixty-six oh. World Cup match on oh, a big God. screen oh. behind them. Um, and listening to Sir Jeff Hurst and the others was absolutely fascinating. Watching a football match for 90 minutes when you know the result is actually very, very dull. Because most football, if you actually take a look at a football match, most of it is pretty boring. And it's the uncertainty. The the uncertainty keeps us tension. Uh, or you know, we're if if you're winning a match with 15 minutes to go, the quality of the football is a complete irrelevance. You spend all your time looking at your watch and biting, you know, biting your fingernails. Um, so, I, I think the the rights holders, and here I think we're probably looking at the you know, the likes of FIFA and UEFA. They will probably have tried this in the past by selling videos of individual matches. And again, you know, I I, I can recall, uh, you know. See, you know, when 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 we've had an occasion or something to celebrate, the club sells sells that the video afterwards, and yes, you buy it, and you go, Christ, you know, it's on fast forward within within, within ten minutes. So 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 therefore, you end up watching the highlights, and and you can actually get the highlights of most of these matches through streaming services and and uh, YouTube and so on. So. Um, what uh, what FIFA have done historically is that they've sort of done a summary of individual World Cups, and yeah, the BBC normally have this in sort of yeah the, the six to eight weeks before the World Cup takes place that you'll have a summary of all the World Cups going back to you know sixty two or fifty eight, um, and you watch those, and an hour long show showing all of the highlights is absolutely fantastic. But ninety minutes of an individual game, yeah. where you know the result, is just—it's not going to sell in terms of units. It's just dull. Yeah, I, I may have told you this before, but a couple of years ago, for a potential TV project, a producer asked me to watch the entire nineteen sixty-six World Cup final to to find bits that might be potentially used with a comedy voiceover. Um, uh, and no disrespect to Sir Jeff Hurst. That was a terrible. It was just really the. Heart, I, I thought at one stage I thought the time had stopped, and then to make things worse, I, I went through the whole thing and made some notes. And he went, that, "That's great. Could you just do another pass?" And I had to watch the bloody thing again. <laughs> and it's just even if, it, and even if I didn't know the result, I would have. I would have oh, if, if I was an England fan, I would have turned it off. Um, Adrian Richards has a question. Uh, about a subject we have discussed in theory before, but this is actually uh, a specific application of it. And Adrian says that his question is a counterintuitive one, but should clubs always try to win to meet their obligations to season ticket holders? For example, Spurs lost the 2019 Champions League final, but did this outcome actually save them from significant future financial expenditure on win bonus, transfer fee, add-ons, the queue of agents trying to move their players on or negotiate pay rises, etc.? I think Adrian raises an interesting point here. What is the purpose of a football club? Is it to win trophies? And yeah, if I was a Spurs fan... And I'd found out that there had been a, a quiet word before the match. 
yeah, try to win, lads, but don't try too hard because it's going to save us X million pounds if we, if we were runners up. I, I, th- I think there would be a, a, bit, a bit, bit of a rumble. Yeah, the the uh, yeah the, the Spurs uh, trophy cabinet is is not looking as full as uh, some of the fans would like it to be. Um, so I think we could look at it. In, in, as far as the football match is concerned, there are a number of stakeholders. The the owners are one, and they might be saying from a financial point of view. And this is an accusation which has been made at certain clubs in the past. Mm. Yeah, just try to get fourth. Yeah, yeah. And remember, Arsene Wenger used to say, "Yeah, fourth in the fourth in the Premier League is the equivalent of winning a trophy." Mm. No, it's not. Right? Okay, it's it's not. You don't you you don't get the open top top uh, bus parade. You you don't get that that night of all nights to remember. Uh, for finishing fourth and so on, um, it, it is financially very beneficial. That there's no doubt about that. Um, but also, if, if we go back to sort of Spurs in the 2019 Champions League final, the players would have been on quite substantial bonuses to win. So whilst the, the owners might go, "Oh, we we, we lost that," uh, what a shame! But think of the money we've saved. The players would say, "Well, a I've lost out on a medal, and that's what I'm that's what I'm here to do mm-hmm. you know, as, as a footballer." And, and B, you know. My my personal sponsors, uh, they were going to be paying me some bonuses. I've got a bonus from the club as well, um, and then from the fans' point of view, um, you know, traipsing away from a cup final that you've lost is is not one of the greatest feelings uh, on the planet. So, you know, I think all of the stakeholders, with the exception of perhaps the club finance director, will will still be wanting, and even most owners, they they like to bask in the reflected glory. Of of taking the club to success, I I, w- I would have a night to remember if I finished fourth. That would be that would be. Fun. <laughs> yes. I just like the idea of Spurs fans listening to this, relaxing with a cup of tea and a digestive, and then spitting the tea out when they hear a Palace fan and a Brighton fan talking about how how little Spurs have won over the years. <laughs> um, Frank Harburn, yeah. That's my favourite name of the week. I'd say Frank Harburn sounds like he should have been a centre forward for Luton doesn't it? Somewhere in the 50s. But Frank Harburn is a Peterborough United fan. And Frank says, since my beloved Peterborough United were relegated last season, there have been a lot of disgruntled posh fans on social media comparing us to Luton or Blackpool in terms of club size, saying we should be able to do what they're doing and consolidate a mid-table position in the championship based on budget. Being social media, however, it's all opinions and very little research. Well done, Frank. <laughs> that's, a, that's the sort of curmudgeonly attitude that I like. Um, so Frank basically wants to know, how do Posh compare financially to those two clubs? And is there any merit to the hypothesis that we should be doing as well as them? Um, I think this is this is good stuff, Frank. Um, we're slightly hamstrung here in the sense that uh, the the twenty one twenty two results haven't been published, so I can't do a direct comparison. Um, what I would say with, with regards to Peterborough, um, if, if we go back to the uh, the last time uh, that, that Peterborough were in the championship, which was uh, in twenty thirteen, and um, this this is how I spend my Sunday mornings, folks. <laughs> by the way, um, at in that season, they they certainly had one of the lowest wage bills uh, in in the championship. It was six point two million. Um, what I would say in, in respect of of Peterborough is that they are a pretty big fish in in the League One pond. Uh, if we take a look at the the most recent season, you know, we were earlier talking about just how little money was being spent in the championship. Well. It, it, that eighty million in the championship is still twice as much as the previous season, and it's substantially higher than um, uh, what what we saw in League One. But in 2020-21, Peterborough actually spent two point three million pounds on on signing players uh, in a COVID season in the third tier. Yeah, that that's a substantial outlay. Mm. Um, Blackpool had wages of eight million the season they went up from League One. Again, that's that's pretty decent by by uh, League One standards, so I think that, you know perhaps we'd be better off revisiting this in, in more depth when 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 we've got the results. But um, you know Peterborough have have a lot of debt um, and they owe a lot of money to the owners. They've got total borrowings of 13, 14 million pounds. The vast majority of which is coming from uh, you know Darren McAntony and his uh, his his colleagues, and they will say, well, you know, we've got these borrowings. 
we will, we will try to set a budget which is competitive. I think perhaps what we ought to say is you, you've got to give a lot of credit to the people who are running Luton and Blackpool. Uh, Peterborough have probably ended up where you would expected them to have ended up giving their budget, and Luton and Blackpool have um, overperformed. You know, because you know the likes of Rotherham, they tend that they they got relegated as well on what I would perceive to be a fairly similar budget to uh, to, to Peterborough themselves. So um, I, I wouldn't necessarily say that Peterborough had underperformed. They're probably in line with expectations, um, whereas Luton and Blackpool. Fair play to them. Yeah, they've done extremely well. Having spoken to some people in the championship with regards to this, the noises that we're getting coming from the championship is, um, I think there's a sort of what you might describe as, as a crystallization of reality, mm. um, which uh, which sounds like a, a prog rock uh, album title, um, in in the uh, in the sense that uh, wages are starting to come down in the championship. And, and certainly I saw that uh, in the 2021 accounts um, overall, and uh, I'd expect that to, to continue. Uh, some clubs are saying we're, we're going to try to uh, get by on, on, a, on an overall budget of 8 to $10 million, uh, which is which is a lot lower than we've been seeing, apart from the likes of Peterborough and Rotherham and, and some of the smaller clubs as well. Uh, before we move on, the door opening and closing reminds me to ask how Finley was when you came back from your break without him? Oh, he, he, he saw his ass. <laughs> uh, it, it was... Uh, Gail's, Gail's son had very kindly looked after him for a fortnight and he'd taken him to the pub every night. <laughs> so, so, so Finley was an absolute element. You can imagine. Uh, you know, he's, he was getting pork scratchings and people were... Yeah, because he's quite a photogenic dog, people were coming up to him and offering him you know, che- cheesy snacks. And, you know, all, all, So he, he's had an absolute whale of the time. And now he sort of comes back to uh, come back to home. He's sort of like, yeah, well, okay, it's, uh, it's, it's nine o'clock. <laughs> it's, it's, time, it's time to pop down to uh, uh, the local boozer. <laughs> That's hilarious. I just... I've just imagining Finley's face as he goes in the pub for the first time, thinking, "My entire life, all my three years on this planet, I've been, <laughs> I've been fobbed off with middle class snacks, quinoa biscuits, <laughs> and look at this, porky scratchings, cheesy snacks." Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code POD. That's ShipStation.com with the code POD. Did I say Frank Harbour was my favourite name this week, Kieran? I, 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 <laughs> I think you did, but hold that beer. <laughs> I spoke a little too soon. So our next question comes from Hooveny Martinez, um, uh, which is a brilliant name. Uh, Hooveny Martinez says, apologies if this has already been asked or answered before. Hooveny, we could have answered this question every week. I still would have asked it again just for the pleasure of saying Hooveny Martinez out loud. Uh, but Hooveny's question is, why many clubs use Macari or Macari um, as their bank of choice for loans against future income from TV revenue? Are they the only bank to provide this facility or do they provide the best rate or is there some other reason? Um, yeah, th- thank you very much, Hooveny, for this one. Um, M- Macquarie, who who are known as the, the Vampire Kangaroo, mm-hmm. uh, do you know, is that, that's their nickname. They're, they're an Australian uh, bank who who have been involved in, in some deals where you go, mm, I think there's, there's some big losers here and there's some big winners and the big winners of the bank and the big losers is, is society as a whole. Um, they... They do have a specialist team which uh, is involved in the the sort of the entertainment industry for, in which football falls it within that, that remit. Um, they, I think, they are they are willing to take on risk, and yeah, I think we've had this discussion before in the sense that if you take a look at things from the position of a commercial bank, if you're the local branch manager of, of Barclays or NatWest. And you lend money to a football club and things don't work out, 
you've then got that awkward conversation. You know, how, how do I, I can't appoint administrators. I've got, you know, I've got 20,000 people in this city or town that have got bank accounts who, who I know will be season ticket holders at the club. You know, they're, they're going to, they're going to throw their toys out of the pram. I'm going to lose accounts. My kids go to the school in this, uh, in this city, they're going to be bullied. So, so the commercial banks don't want to take on um, the, the risks associated with lending money to football clubs because football clubs get relegated and football clubs are sometimes run by idiots who, who can't manage the way out of a paper bag from a financial perspective. So therefore, Macquarie are willing to take on the uh, that financial risk because they don't have branches, so therefore they don't have to worry about these things. Um, and in addition, from, from their point of view, because they've done this before, They've got the weight of numbers. So if you if you lend money to one football club and it goes wrong, that's a hundred percent failure rate. If you lend money to twenty clubs and one goes wrong, you've still got nineteen deals which are successful. So they, they do have a specialist unit. They 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 charge interest probably in the region of eight to nine percent, um, mainly on transfer receivables. You know, we, we were talking earlier uh, about uh, I think one, you know, the first question. About a club that was buying and selling players on credit. Well, the Premier League clubs uh, themselves, um, they they are due to receive over half a billion pounds in outstanding instalments. What they do, they go to the likes of Macquarie and they say, "Well, you know, I'm owed forty million pounds on this deal. Will you give me some cash for it? Here's his two IOUs from another club." And Macquarie, they'll do their due diligence. Then they insure. Then they go to an insurance broker. Yeah, they thought, again, specialist insurance broker. The insurance broker will say, "Well, yeah, we we will ensure that that money uh, gets paid." Um, and and there's there's a lot there's a lot of people. There's quite a big supply chain um, in all of these deals. And then it's you know it's, it's a bit like it's a classic duck. You know, all all of the actions taking below the water, whereas the, the focus is very much as far as the media is concerned on the transfer itself. Mm. Uh, next question comes from Will Downs. Uh, I don't know Will Downs, as far as I recall, but I do know that Will Downs is a proper football fan because Will Downs is worrying, and Will Downs, like most football fans, has seen the worst-case scenario and has rushed headlong towards it. Um, and Will says, it's been a chaotic few months at my club, Reading. My question is, what would the exit strategies be for Dai Yong, the owner, if he decided he no longer wanted to lose money by owning the club? Would he be able to simply dissolve the business if he no longer fancies and wasn't prepared to underwrite the debts or find someone who would? Are there any safeguards in place to stop this happening? What are the chances that we will be supporting Phoenix Club Reading AFC in the Vanarama League South in five years' time? Um, right, there, there's, there's quite a few Things to unpack there, Will. Um, the, the options which are available to uh, Dai Young are if he decides he no longer wants to to underwrite the losses of the club, and, and those losses are pretty substantial because Reading have been uh, regularly uh, having wages at uh, 200% of, of income in recent years. Um, he, he could put the club into administration. So therefore, he relinquishes day-to-day control. Um, and, and we know what's happened at Derby. The, the administrators then have to go and do a quick, uh, a quick reconnaissance. Do we have enough money to run the club? The alternative to that is that you put the club into liquidation, and you effectively say, um, "I'm going to." Yeah, and I, I remember was was it Middlesbrough in the mid eighties where mm. you, we saw those news pictures of, yeah. of padlocks at yeah, the ground? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so. Um, he could say, I, I don't want to go down that route. Um, I'm, I'm going to liquidate the club. And then all of the contracts of employment are immediately terminated. Uh, all trading with the club uh, ceases. And it effectively would have to hand back its its its, its golden share in the EFL because it's no longer in a position to fulfill fixtures. That would be clearly worst case scenario. Um, are there safeguards in place with regards to this? No, there, there are no safeguards. Perhaps, perhaps if we had an independent football regulator, <laughs> as suggested by Tracy Crouch MP, we're back. <laughs> <laughs> Yay! <laughs> How did you manage? Uh, How did you manage a whole summer break without uh, text from Tracy Crouch? Um, there, there were 
text from Tracy no, Crouch over the course Kieran. of the day. <laughs> I'm always transparent. I do say to the Baroness, oh, just got a text from Tracy Crouch, and she just orders another mojito. <laughs> you know, I'm beginning to suspect that the, the Baroness might quite like the fact that you upset her. If every time you annoy her, she orders another drink. It's no wonder she stays with you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's the only reason I think. Yes. Um, so, so are there safeguards? N- no, there aren't. Uh, you know, there, there. We we see amazing efforts from fans, but uh, remember when you know Maidstone they went bust. Yeah. Um, yeah, and uh, that, that's it's it's always it's always a risk. Um, do I expect uh, Reading AFC to be in the Vanarama League South in five years' time? No, no, I don't. Um, mainly because uh, I, I think that Reading are, are too attractive a proposition. Yeah, uh, yeah. The, the stadium is 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 a you know it, it's it's a decent size. It's relatively it's relatively new. Um, Reading have a have a solid fan base, um, and yeah. You know, whilst you know things at Derby at times were were not necessarily great, I, I think I, I was fairly consistent in my view that they would get through it. And and that did prove to be the case. I, th- I think we could probably view Reading in a, in a not dissimilar position to that. Uh, there are too many interested parties in football. Uh, in, in terms of, hey, I'm, I'm constantly being asked, can I, you know, send off the accounts of this company X or company Y to individual Z uh, because they're thinking of putting in a bid. And uh, yeah, if if I'm doing it and I'm just a teacher, then you know the the, the professionals who who charge for this, because I, I I haven't quite worked out. I'm, I'm always so flattered. I just oh yeah yeah help, help yourself. Um, uh, the, the professionals will be will be dealing with this on a regular basis. There, there are an, there are an awful lot of clubs at present who are not explicitly up for sale, but uh, owners let it be known that we're willing to have a conversation. Mm. Couple more questions to go. The first comes from Barclay Webster, another good name. Um, and this is a very interesting question, Kieran. It's a subject we haven't discussed before, but it's one that I suspect you, uh, well, uh, I suspect producer Guy would want us to be circumspect in answering it. Um, when Ian Hislop, Solomon Hughes, and Richard Brooks of Private Eye magazine attended a parliamentary select committee meeting on standards earlier this year, They discussed MP Alberto Costa being given tickets to a Euro 2020 semi-final by Heineken. The ticket and hospitality, which was actually used by a member of his staff, was valued at £645. I'm assuming the answer is no, but do we know which other MPs have accepted football-related gifts and the nature and value of these gifts? Or perhaps more importantly, do we know of any MPs who have accepted gifts from football-related entities, clubs, agents, etc.? And again, if so, what was the nature and value? Um, right. Well, we we do know some of this because uh, under under parliamentary procedures, you you have to have a, a register of uh, any uh, and any benefits that you get from from third parties. So if we take uh, if we take the case of Entain. Um, people say, well, who, who, who are Entain? Entain, you, you might know more commonly as, as Labrooks and Foxy Bingo. Yeah. And, um, and, Labbro- and Entain was, uh, was fined uh, recently. It was fined £17 million for uh, failure to have sufficient controls in respect of money laundering and safer gambling. And I always get a bit twitchy about this thing called yeah. safer gambling because uh, you know, if, if you're an alcoholic, there's no such thing as safer drinking. Yeah. If you've got a heroin uh, habit, there's no such thing as safer shooting up. So this, this is sort of you know, the soft words which are put out by the industry. Um, Entain has provided tickets for events, and that these are not all events too, Nigel Adams, Aaron Bell, Scott Benton, Graham Brady, Philip Davis, Mark Jenkinsons, Esther McVeigh, Caroline Noakes, Lawrence Robinson, Ben Wallace, and Craig Whitaker of the Conservative Party, Pat McFadden, Toby Jenkins, sorry, Toby Perkins, and Jonathan Reynolds of Labour. Um, that's what we've seen in the register. The value of those um, of, of those tickets was we're talking uh, five figures. Betfred have done similar. We've got the Betting and Gaming Council. Um, which is effectively the industry body. 
that has provided uh, tickets and uh, issues to to twenty four MPs. Again, it's it's not a party political issue. I think there were thirteen Conservative and eleven Labour. Uh, the total value of those tickets was thirty six thousand pounds. So it's it's not like uh, you know they're not popping down to to the local. Uh, you know, We've just been talking about National League South. They tend to be slightly higher profile. Mm. Um, the Betting and Gaming Council pays Lawrence Robinson, Robertson, who is an MP, pays that, that MP £2,000 a month. Uh, it's, uh, I believe it's paid Philip Davis, who is the vice chair of the all-party parliamentary group on betting and gambling, £12,000 in total in terms of you know, tickets and uh, other bits and pieces. So it is it is a common issue. And, and I'm not saying that this has impacted upon the views taken by MPs in terms of uh, protecting punters. Um, but uh, it, it is, uh, and I'm not having a go at the, the gambling industry itself. It, it's it's the way it's the way that lobbying works. Um, and again, in the sake of transparency, we've we've been offered tickets uh, by. Uh, by other bodies uh, to uh, to attend matches. I, th- I think we were off- offered tickets to go and see. I think it was uh, Arsenal versus Manchester United. Yeah. I'm going, well, yeah, Brighton, Brighton are playing at home to Burnley that day. You know, yeah. and you're, you're going, well, yeah, Palace, we've got uh, we've got Leicester. You know, and, yeah, so, so yeah, we, we, we don't understand why anybody would offer us the tickets when our clubs are playing that day. But, you know, dif- different folks have, have a different view of football. Um, um, and, and that has been through. Um, I think that was. I, I won't name the organisation. That was a uh, uh, one of these uh, yeah, magic beans companies. Mm. Um, so, so it, it happens, and uh, yeah, it, it's it's nice to be asked to uh, to attend an event, and it happens in all other industries as well. It's not just MPs. You know, entertaining clients or entertaining people that you want to have a conversation with is part of of modern day living. But it it is quite common between uh, the uh, the gambling industry and uh, and the people who you know, will be voting possibly in respect of the uh, you know, the white paper if 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 it, if it turns into a proposal for for football and and gambling as well, which is a uh, is a major stakeholder in the game. I, um, this is something we, by which I mean you really need to investigate further, Kieran, because, I mean, these are not huge amounts of money we're talking about here, and we're not, no, talk- no, no. And we're not talking about backhand as evil. We need to make that perfectly clear. But we have seen the government recently uh, row back on its promise um, uh, to, to perhaps look at stopping gambling company sponsor shirts. That's gone from a promise to a vague suggestion that clubs do it. So there will be people putting two and two together and saying, well, hang on a second, has that happened because people in government are being offered nice tickets to games by gambling companies? And I'm not saying that is the case, but it, it, you know, on first inspection, it doesn't look good. So I, I, yeah, this is something we do definitely need to keep an eye on, I think. So I'd, I'd quite like to thank Barclay Webster for that question. Mm. Um, and I'm in studio with Ian Hislop next week, so if I bump into him, I might ask him for any further information because he has the same habit of you of saying, I can't possibly tell you, and then uh, telling you in great detail, which, <laughs> which would be really handy. Uh, Rami Zak has a question on a topic which he says he hasn't heard discussed in the episodes he's listened to thus far. Um, so he's been fortunate to miss them then because football agents are something we talk about quite a lot but Rami's question is are there any financial limitations imposed on a licensed player agent in the PL or EFL leaving aside third party ownership uh, brackets I'm not sure of its status right now but pretty sure former cases have led to better protection against it yet judging from cases such as Mendes at Wolves it would seem to me that agents may be free to roam which I think is not in line with the interest of the game Yes, uh, it's, it's a good one, this, Rami. Um, FIFA abolished uh, formal licences for intermediaries uh, in 2015. Um, I, I think FIFA, I'm, I'm not being critical here, I think FIFA took the view that it, it's an impossible industry to police, so let's just not try to police it, uh, which which is an interesting uh, uh Mm. Uh, approach taken by by lawmakers, and, and I hope it doesn't spread to to other parts of society. Um, 
If uh, the FA, however, taken a slightly stronger position, they say, uh, if you want to be uh, an intermediary, um, again, we're not going to please you as such. We're not going to make you do any exams. But uh, if you give us 500 quid plus that, you can become a an intermediary. Um, to be fair to FIFA, they they are making proposals. And I know our friend uh, Jonathan Booker, who has, has written extensively on this on his blog, and, and I'd encourage you, if you're interested, Rami or anybody else, to take a look at what's, uh, what Jonathan has been writing, um, that uh, FIFA are trying to impose limits. Uh, so in terms of being free to roam and free to charge, I think FIFA are trying to, to limit what can be charged by agents uh, and you know, whether whether there'll be dual or triple representation where an agent can represent the buying club, the selling club and the player in a particular deal. We'll have to wait to see whether that goes ahead. So so uh, at present, it's, uh, it's pretty much a free-for-all. Um, an agent can take as much commission as uh, they, the other party is willing to pay them, um, but that might be reined in in the future. It's, it's it's always one of the facts that I like to surprise people with, Kieran, when inevitable pub conversations turn to football finance because they don't know how little information I retain from, <laughs> from week to week. But essentially, to be an agent in the Premier League, as you say, all you need to do is pay £500 and not have been in prison for a financial crime. You could have been in prison for any other crime, but as long as you've got 500 quid and you haven't got a record for defrauding somebody then you're fine which is a, an odd state of affairs basically there's, there's you know there's no one you know that's why so many players end up with their mate or their brother mm. or somebody they've met in the same pub as me as their agent and it's it's like you said it's a strange thing for FIFA to say is like this is too this is too difficult it's like walking into a pub going I, I, I can't stop this fight I'm going to go to another pub which is fine <laughs> which is fine if it's you and me but not so good if you're a policeman um, uh, two more questions and they're good ones Steve Sutton says I'm an Arsenal fan but for many years have an association with Ashford Town now Ashford United based in Kent not Middlesex just, I, I've got oof, I, oof. I, just I've got three friends who are from different Ashfords and they get so cross because I can't keep up with which, which one they're from. It's, it's, yeah. it's the one in Kent, not Middlesex. Um, uh, but Steve says, more recently I got involved in grassroots football with coaching my daughter's teams. I used to help with the turnstiles at Ashford on match days and at times help put together pay packets for the players. My question is, what effect do players moving down the leagues from professional football into non-league football with their wage demands have on club finances at those lower league clubs? Well, um, I used to live in Ashford, Middlesex, <gasps> uh, not Kent. That was, it was the first. Uh, it, was, it was when 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 my old man decided we, we were going to move out of the elephant uh, because uh, Uncle Terry's influence was uh, was was too great. Um, but uh, with with regards to the position on on players moving from from league to non league, and we are when we have seen some clubs uh, pay very large sums. Yeah, um, the, the vast majority of the clubs in the national league are losing money, and and that is due to to wage expectations uh, because it is now it's it's got the. It's, it's got the benefits of being full time in the sense that the quality of the football, in terms of the training and the, the coaching and so on, is is dealt with on a full time basis for practically every club, uh, and uh, including Altrincham, uh, because we, we we were corrected recently. What I said, <laughs> boy, that, boy, were we corrected? <laughs> oh yeah. Um, so 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 clubs have gone full time, which is going to increase the wage bills. And uh, I think the main difference is that the the, the clubs uh, in the National League uh, tend to operate on ten month contracts uh, rather than twelve months yeah. in in order to cut cut the bills down. But uh, the, the the wages are are not necessarily sustainable, given that all of the clubs are losing money. So uh, there there is there is wage inflation uh, in in all levels of football. I think it's fair to say, you know, I mentioned earlier that speaking to some people in the championship, they, they feel that uh, it's it's certainly plateauing and it is now starting to decline. Um, and again, sort of some of the noises I'm coming out talking to people in Leagues 1 and 2, that's also the case. So perhaps we're moving to a slightly more sustainable model. Um, I would expect that to be reflected in the National League. I, th- I think, however, 
part of the problem with the National League is because only two clubs are promoted, that again incentivizes clubs to overspend on wages because it, it's that more di- that much more difficult to get promoted to League Two. Is this a case for saying we should have three up, three down uh, from from League Two to the National League to reflect the fact that the professionalism in the game has extended to a fifth tier? So uh, players in the National League are not paid for two months of every year. Is that right? That's that's right. But the, yeah, the the vast majority of them are on one. Uh, one-year contract, so effectively from the 1st of July to the 30th of April. Um, I, I know when we had Lee Lee, Lee from uh, one of the local clubs down here in the southeast, uh, he, he was telling us that, I think, at the time, and, and that, that does appear to be the case. Um, if, you, if, you, if you've signed a two-year contract, then you'll probably get paid for the 12 months, but, but most players are only on a, a one-year contract, and therefore that contract expires on the 30th of April. Hmm. Uh, apologies to Lee from one of the local southeast clubs. I, I, <laughs> I, I can't remember which club it was either. Uh, Dulwich? I don't know. Our last question comes from Andrew Bissett, and it's a question I suspect a lot of people have been asking recently. Um, uh, it's one that I wouldn't ask Alan Shearer at the moment because he's very cross about VAR, very cross about VAR. <laughs> uh uh, and even I admit that we Palace got away with that one against Newcastle, I have to say. But partly because I think VAR looked at Tyrick Mitchell's innocent little baby face and thought, how could he possibly have pushed anybody? Um, Andrew Bissett's question is, how much does it cost to upgrade a stadium for VAR or goal line technology? Right. Um, again, thanks to uh, uh, some of our, our friends in the industry for supplying this. Um, I, I was told it was, it was about £20,000 right. just to make some some adjustments. As far as the running costs of VAR are concerned, however, those are all paid centrally by the Premier League itself um, and, of course, the, the costs which are incurred by PGMOL. Um, and that is subtracted from the pot before the pot is is then distributed to clubs uh, in terms of the prize money that they generate at the end of each season. Mm. It's an interesting one. I know talking to a couple of club owners, uh, Steve Parrish in particular, he he reckons a promoted club is going to be spending probably five million quid in the yeah. in the in the close season to get the ground up to scratch with uh, floodlights, uh, uh, internet, so on and so forth. The goal line technology thing is interesting because you have to pay to install it, but you don't own it, mm. um, yes. which is a, which is a very interesting one. Um, and I, I assume that if a club is relegated, the goal line technology is taken off them. That 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 is the case. Yeah, it, it's a bit. It's, it's yeah. Remember when? Remember when we were kids and our mum and dad used to to rent a television mm. you know, from DER or Radio Rentals. It's it's not dissimilar to that. Yeah, I was, I was always terrified. They were massive, weren't they, those TVs? They were. And yes. very hot. Yes, and, and very and, unreliable. Every, every now and again you think, I might have to turn this off because it's getting too hot. And then you think, well, what's the other alternative? We haven't got the internet yet. Um, ah, that would have been good as a 12-year-old if I knew the internet was coming. I could have made a fortune. Thanks to everyone who's donated to the pod via our Patreon page. If you'd like to make a small monthly contribution to the pod, that's very kind of you. Please go to patreon.com slash priceoffootball. If you have a question you'd like answered on the show, email us at questions at priceoffootball.com. And I've really missed saying this. In the meantime, I shall hand you over to Mr. Kieran Maguire for his customary farewell. Well, as always, folks, thanks very much for the support for uh, for all of those Altrincham fans who have put us in our position. Boy, are we in our box. I, um, I, th- I think in our in our defence, Kieran, that's a, uh, a corollary of the fact that we have such a backlog. That that question was asked when they were very much a part time team, and, yes. and because we were giddy with excitement at going on a. A, a, a mid-season break. We didn't bother to check whether they still were. But thank you. Thank you to all those Altrincham fans and all those fans of other clubs who decided they'd weigh in as well. Uh. <laughs> um, so, yeah, yeah. Uh, P- Patreon is, is one way of uh, showing a bit of uh, love and affection for the show. The other way of doing that is is to go on to your podcast app. And uh, if you can give us a review, you can give us five stars. Uh, 
Uh, things are worked out using algorithms, uh, which, which we, me and Kevin just look blankly at each other when producer guy gives us the, the weekly lecture on this. Um, but but it does it does help us when we're trying to book guests for the show. It does help us in the charts and, and getting getting sponsors and so on. Um, by all accounts, it, it doesn't matter what you say uh, in your review. In fact, you don't even have to write a review. You can just give us five stars. Um, you could even say that you'd rather have the show presented by T.V. Smith, the lead singer of the adverts, because <laughs> I've been singing Gary Gilmore's <laughs> Eyes for the last 72 hours <laughs> to myself, uh, and Jean-Claude Van Damme. Wow. I, I, he's a surprisingly nice fellow, Jean-Claude Van Damme. Do you know what? By bizarre coincidence, I was walking down Oxford Street the other day and saw a stall with uh, a Gary Gilmore's Eyes T-shirt. No. Yeah, and it made me think oh, of Oh, wow. And it made me think of you. How's, how's oh. that? We have been married too long, haven't we? <laughs> we have. <laughs> Bye, everybody. <laughs> Bye. The price of football. I'm for the